0: Well, thank you, Matt, and good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles now and turn to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, looking at the entirety of the chapter this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 743. That's 743. And as always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider this text together. Let's pray now. Our Lord, as we come to you now with Bibles opened on our laps, preparing to hear what you would have for us, we pray that your Spirit would come, that He would minister to our hearts, that He would impress upon us the significance of the events that happened on that day that. You would help us to make appropriate application of it to our individual lives and as as a local church. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in the time spent in your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's chapter does contain one of the Bible's best-known stories. It is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's a remarkable story. And there is an unforgettable lesson at the end. But to set the context as we begin here, the events of Daniel chapter 6 occurred a full 70 years after the events of chapter 1. That's when Daniel was taken captive by the Babylonian Empire as a teenage boy. Well, Daniel is not a teenage boy any longer. He is now in his mid-80s. And the empire that kidnapped him, the Babylonian Empire, has ceased to exist. They were taken down by the new Medo-Persian Empire. And the new king of this empire is a man named Darius. Now, like all of his predecessors, Darius gained the throne through a combination of violence and intrigue. But he was also a man of remarkable accomplishments. Under his leadership, the Medo-Persian Empire became the largest empire of any kingdom in the history of the world to that point. It stretched from Europe down into Africa and then all the way across the Middle East into East Asia. It was a mammoth empire. Darius was also an administrative genius, so he was able to take this vast and diverse empire and bring some form of unity to it. So he standardized their currency, their systems of weights and measures. He also established land and sea routes for international trade, and he oversaw many construction projects, including palaces, fortifications. He built a council hall and also a treasury building. He also built up an impressive bureaucracy that consisted of local officials and then regional officials, national officials above them, and then King Darius himself at the top. And he was also a fairly good judge of character. And that brings us to the opening two verses of Daniel chapter 6, which read, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, or governors, To be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these say traps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Okay, So you can see Darius here in the early years of his reign, and he is trying to bring some internal order to this vast kingdom. He has organized a a system of provinces throughout his empire. They were called satrapies, and then above these were the provincial governors, called the satraps. He is identifying the men who will serve in each of these roles. And then he's going to have three high bureaucrats who will oversee all of them. And Daniel, this Jewish captive now in his mid-80s, is tapped to be one of these high-ranking bureaucrats. Now, why on earth would King Darius tap a man like Daniel to help lead his kingdom? Well, it was because Daniel had proven character. See, from his youth, Daniel had resolved to be a man of God. And by the grace of God, he had kept that resolution his entire life. He had a life that from start to finish was free of any kind of scandal, His life was was marked by strong moral character, and he had persisted through all of the ups and downs of life, through kidnappings, through the rise and fall of empires, and he had never wavered. And Darius saw that. Darius wanted a man like that, ruling over his kingdom, especially over its financial affairs, making sure that the taxes collected at the bottom were making their way all the way to the top without his officials skimming pieces off along the way. He saw these things about Daniel. Verse 3, it says he noticed Daniel's excellent spirit. Verse 4, he noticed that Daniel was a faithful man. Also, verse 4, His co-workers found that no errors or faults could be found in him. Not meaning that he was morally perfect, but certainly free of any kind of glaring scandal. And then in verse 5, they also noticed that he was faultless with regard to the law of God. Here was a man absolutely dedicated to godliness. And Daniel's inner godliness overflowed into a lifestyle that made him useful to others Decade after decade. First part of verse 3 tells us that even in this high-ranking position, he was distinguishing himself above others. So here's this man. He's in his mid-80s, but he has not yet reached the peak of his career. He's still climbing, still distinguishing himself in his superior's eyes. And friends, there is a lesson here for us, particularly for uh, the teenagers and young adults in our church, those just beginning to branch out in life. My friends, you can become a leader in your generation and a model of godliness at the same time. You can become a person of tremendous influence. In fact, if God would so will it, and to do so without Moral compromise. So don't let anyone try to convince you that the only way to have success in your life or career is by compromising godly principles. Just look to Daniel and know that that isn't the case. But, friends, there's also something else to understand from the chapter, and that is that the path of a godly man will not always be easy. God can indeed use you in your generation in great ways. But there may come very difficult times. We see that in the first part of verse 4. It says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. See, Daniel is rising to incredible heights in the new Medo-Persian empire. But his co-workers, these, these fellow bureaucrats, they are not pleased with this at all. I mean, they look at Daniel and he is a foreigner, okay, he is Jewish by heritage, he's not a Persian. They are offended by his godliness. They don't like to see the favor that Darius is placing upon him. And so now these very ungodly men start to conspire together to figure out how they can bring Daniel down. So the very thing about Daniel, his godliness, which brought him to the heights of power, are also the very traits that are going to bring conflict into his life. And he'll create enemies who want to bring him down. Verses 6 through 9, they try to figure out what they can do. They look into his public life and into his private life, but they just can't find anything that would disqualify him from this high leadership post. And then finally, they come up with an idea that that is quite brilliant. They come up with an idea to actually turn Daniel's godliness against him. They know that they can't find any great scandal, so they're going to use his godly character. And here's what they come up with. Let's read verses 6 and 9 together. It says, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king, that's Darius, and they said to him, O Darius, live forever. And all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you o king shall be cast into the den of lions okay so you see what what they're doing here daniel's godliness is the only thing they can use against him and so they do they go to king darius with this Plan and they say, Darius, we have an idea. We think you're going to like it. All of us in government are agreed about it. Let's unite this new empire by, by making every citizen in it worship and pray to you exclusively for 30 days. Just 30 days. This will turn the hearts of all of your people to you. We all think this is a very wise course of action. Friends, this is the very first example of the deep state at uh, at work. Here here they are, bureaucrats conspiring against um, another high official. And they say, let us enforce this new edict by threatening the lion's den to anyone who will not obey. Darius considers their proposal, and he agrees to it for a number of reasons. First of all, because the conspirators tell him that everyone in government thinks it's a good idea. So it has a ring of wisdom to it. Also, he did have a very large and diverse empire. This did seem like a good way to try to unify the diverse peoples. Besides all of that, I think Darius was a bit of a narcissist, too, just like his predecessors were. He probably liked the thought of... Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people the world over, praying to him, giving homage to him as a god. And so you see verse 9, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Now this new law would not have been a problem to the vast majority in Medo-Persia. They were all pagans, and pagans, by definition, worship many gods. And so for them, you understand, it would have been no big deal to maybe set aside their pantheon for 30 days so that they could pay homage to their emperor, who they would also acknowledge as a god, and then they could turn back to their pantheon at the end of the month. That was just not a big deal. Not a big deal to add one more god when you're already worshipping many gods. But for Daniel and others like him, this would have been a huge problem. Because, you see, Daniel was a worshiper of the true and living God. And Daniel understood that there is only one God, and that the God that he worshipped should never, or would never, allow worship to be transferred to anyone else. Certainly not to a man. You know the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and the second commandment, you shall not make for yourselves any graven images, not of the heavens above or things on the earth or things under the earth, you shall not bow or worship them, for I the Lord your God am a jealous god. So you see Darius' new edict was not a problem for the great sea of pagans that he ruled over, but it was a huge problem for people like Daniel, who could not bow before anyone except the God of heaven. And so Daniel has been set up here for a very difficult challenge. What is he going to do now that he finds himself at odds with the laws of the land? Well, we see what Daniel's going to do in verse 10. It says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed... Here's what he did. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. Remember, that's where the Jewish temple had been. And he got down on his knees three times a day. That's morning, noon, and night. And he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So Daniel had this long-standing habit. Three times a day, he would climb to the second story of his very prominent house. Remember, he's one of the highest-ranking officials in all of the Medo-Persian Empire. His house was large. It was prominent. It set above others. But he had this habit of climbing up to the second story of his home, throwing open the windows that faced Jerusalem, and there he would get on his knees, morning, noon, and night, and he would pray to God. Prayers of thanks, uh, offering petitions, offering worship to God. It was a very public display of piety. And what did Daniel do after the new law was passed? Well, verse 10 says he kept right on doing that. We see here no hesitation. There is no mental wrestling about whether or not he should find a way to accommodate the king's new law. He just continues the practice as always. Same times, same location, same everything. Friends, this does raise some interesting questions, doesn't it? It was a faithful Jewish man. Daniel was bound to the law of Moses. And as we've already established, the law of Moses does not allow anyone to transfer their worship from God to something else. So certainly Daniel could not pray to or pay homage to Darius. But at the same time, the law of Moses did not require God's people to pray three times a day. It did not require God's people to throw open their windows and in a public display of their piety, point themselves toward Jerusalem and offer their prayers. These aspects of Daniel's prayer life were just his own personal custom. And yet he continues even these after the king's new edict. So the question is, after the new law was passed, should Daniel have sought to accommodate the new law in some way? Yes, there were aspects in direct conflict with the law of Moses, but there were other aspects of his prayer life that were not direct violations of the law of Moses. So, should Daniel have tried to accommodate the law? Should he have have stopped praying altogether for 30 days? It was only one month, after all. Could he go one month without praying to anyone, thereby technically keeping uh, Darius' new edict and not violating um, the laws of God? Could he have done that? Or if he felt compelled to continue praying, could he at least have kept those windows shut? (laughs) so that it wasn't publicly known that he was defying the laws of the king, of the empire? Is there anything that Daniel could or should have done to make the conflict uh, less apparent? Well, my friends, I believe that Daniel was absolutely right to ignore the king's edict and that he was absolutely right to continue with his practice just as he had always done before. Both those elements that were directly tied to the law of Moses and to those elements related to his own conscience and custom. He was absolutely right to do what he did. And my friends, if we should ever find ourselves in a similar situation... I would hope that every single one of us would do exactly as Daniel has done. Now let me explain. Friends, government is a God-ordained institution. But as a God-ordained institution, God has also prescribed the bounds of governmental authority. So that there are some things that civil government has been empowered by God to do. There are other things that God has not empowered government to do. And friends, one of those things that government simply has no rightful authority over is a believer's prayer life. Your prayer life is between you and God. And that includes what posture you pray in, where you pray from, exactly how you pray and how long you pray, All of these things are matters between you and God. It's you and your conscience as it is held captive to the word of God. Government has no right to regulate that aspect of your life. And so then, to obey a law that would seek to regulate your prayer life would be to grant the civil government power over you that God simply has not given it. It's to give your government the power to decide when and where and how and to whom you will pray. In essence, it's to allow the civil government to usurp the prerogatives of God. And that, my friends, is idolatry. Anytime that you give the authority of God to another thing in your life, you are committing idolatry any time that you become absolutely, unqualifiedly obedient to a human authority, you are committing idolatry. And Daniel recognized this, that both in the object that he was to pray to, namely to Darius, and simply in the government's attempt to regulate the, the timing and the nature of his prayers, the government was wrong. They were violating the rightful bounds of their authority, and so Daniel refused to comply with any of it. He refused to accommodate the king's new law. And Daniel was ready to die on this principle. It didn't matter to him that it was only for 30 days. He's ready to go to the lions on this one. Better to reserve all of God's prerogatives for God alone than to ever concede any of it to a human ruler. Better to live with a clear conscience before God in the way that you approach Him than to have your conscience violated by another and to live with the, the uh, guilt of a broken conscience. Better to have a short life that has been lived faithfully than a long life that was lived in compromise. These are the things that Daniel understood. He had lived by these principles his entire life, and by the grace of God, he had indeed made it into old age, and he certainly wasn't going to change now. Friends, I hope the contemporary relevance of this has not been lost on you, because we have been facing matters like this for two solid years here in the West. Now, here in Michigan, we've been... Very blessed because we have had a a governor and a legislature that has carved out careful exemptions for religious believers, not attempting to coerce their worship practices at all, not forbidding them from gathering, not telling them they, they can preach but not sing, haven't tried to say you can live stream but not be in person, haven't tried to tell us how many people can gather at a time, how close or far apart we can stand. All of these kinds of things. But you understand that in other states all over the country, these very edicts were coming down. What should the churches have done? Should they have accommodated? Or should they have done what the scriptures tell them to do? Should they have lived with a clear conscience before God? Should they have refused to give the civil government the ability to tell the people of God how and where and when they will worship? Well, I think Daniel's example answers the question for us. Now we turn to verses 16 through 18, and we find out what the consequences were. Understand, there will be consequences to difficult stands. Verse 16 says, And the king commanded, Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Okay, so... All of Daniel's fellow bureaucrats know that he has defied the king's orders. They have taken that information to Darius. Darius is heartbroken because he loves Daniel. He doesn't want to lose him. But, Daniel, but Darius is also not going to allow his orders to go unheeded. And so he casts Daniel into the lion's den. But then look what happens later, verse 16. It says, And the king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. Darius didn't want Daniel to die. Verse 17, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him because he felt really, really bad about all of this. Friend, the lesson of these verses, first, that governments do not make empty threats. If a government says to you, you must do this, and if you say, I will not comply with that, you can expect that they will carry out the threatenings of the law. They will not allow their orders to be ignored. And so, friends, this being the case, you must prepare yourself, as Daniel did, to face whatever consequences may come because of your faithfulness. You must be prepared, like Daniel, to be thrown into the lion's den if that is required to stand faithful. Or like Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, before King Nebuchadnezzar all those decades prior. Do you remember that story in the earlier chapters? How King Nebuchadnezzar had built this colossus outside of Babylon, requiring all of his officials to come and prostrate themselves before the statue? And Daniel's three friends said, No, Nebuchadnezzar, we will not do it. And Nebuchadnezzar said, then you will go into the furnace that forged the the statue. And they said, so be it. God can deliver us if he wants to, but even if he doesn't, we have no regrets. We will not comply. Just like the Apostle Paul, many generations after Daniel, who wrote this in Acts chapter 20, he said, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city affliction and imprisonment await me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, but only that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus. My friends, from... Almost the beginning of human history, right on through to the present time, God's people have been put in these impossible situations by their governing authorities. They have been told to abandon the worship of the true and living God or to moderate their commitment to their God, to accommodate the doctrines that they have embraced with the prevailing philosophies of the culture. They have always been brought into these conflicts. And friends, the faithful children of God have always given the same answer. We will worship our God. We will embrace all of His doctrines and duties. We will go on living for Him with all of our hearts, no matter what. If you wish to take our life to stop us, that's what you will have to do. Because we will not stop otherwise. My friends, God's people have always stood up to tyrants. Those who would claim the prerogatives of God. When we know that only one deserves those prerogatives. So friends, in cases like the one we're witnessing here, we know what we must do. And friends, our refusal to cower before the authorities in these cases become a public testimony of the supremacy of God over all things. You understand that? It is not an issue of anarchy. It's an issue of submission to a higher and a greater authority. And when we submit ourselves to the highest authority, to God, rather than to the conflicting authorities of man, we are declaring to all that God is indeed supreme. We are publicly testifying to the exclusive place that God ought to hold in every person's life. We are testifying to the surpassing worth of God over all things, even life itself. We are publicly rebuking godless men who would seek to take on the prerogatives of God. We are showing God's power to give us courage in the face of danger when we confront such laws. We become a powerful testimony that can change the lives of countless thousands, as Daniel has changed so many lives over the generations. My friends, this is the kind of courage that the people of God are called to in every generation. But how do we cultivate this kind of courage? Well, we've spoken of this before. I would suggest that it just, it's just a few simple steps. Number one, if we are to have the kind of courage exhibited by Daniel and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, and in the New Testament of Paul and all of the apostles, first thing we must do, build our biography of God. We've got to build our biography of God. You see, if you have a small God, He is not going to give you the kind of courage that you will need to face these moments. No, you need a big God. You need to see God as He really is. You need to see him in all of his power and his sovereignty. You need to see that the whole world is in his hands. You need to see that even when a tyrant would threaten God's people, that he is still with his people. You need to see that. You need to see his worthiness to be followed. My friends, you need a big God to face down tyrants. But then more than that, you also need to come to a full assurance of your status before God. Because, you see, you can have a big vision of God, but if you're not sure that you're His child, that He is your Father, that if man should take your life, your spirit will immediately be in His presence, if you're not assured of those things, then you're not going to have courage then either. Friends, it behooves us all to be sure that we are in a right state before God. Have you come to Him As he truly is, and have you come to him in the way that he has prescribed, namely through faith and repentance? Have you come recognizing the, the gift of God in Jesus Christ, how he sent his son into the world to live, die, and rise again for your justification? Have you embraced him wholeheartedly? Have you come into union with God through his son Jesus? That too is prerequisite to living a courageous life. But then third, we must practice the spiritual disciplines throughout the Christian life. See, the only way we're going to maintain that kind of spiritual resolve is if we're constantly intaking the scriptures, if we're constantly going to God with prayer, if we're constantly among the people of God in the context of a local church, worshiping with God's people, bearing one another's burdens, encouraging each other. And then finally, and this is a hard one, I've also spoken of this one before. We have to be willing to let go of our own agendas for our lives. You know, it is okay to make plans for your life. We all need to do it. In fact, wisdom calls us to make plans. But we also have to be prepared for the fact that God can change our plans dramatically at any given moment. Think again of Daniel, born and raised in Israel, lived his early life um, there, became a, a devoted follower of God, and then as an early teenager, ripped out of his homeland, ripped from his parents, his homeland destroyed, carted off into exile in Babylon, forced into the service of the king of Babylon. His life was changed dramatically, but still he retained his faith and his courage Because he understood that his life was God's, not his own. And if this is what God wanted to do with his life, he was okay with that. It was painful and it was hard. I can't imagine what the adjustment must have been like. But ultimately, he trusted in God. God was in charge of Daniel's agenda Same thing happened here as the Babylonian Empire collapsed. The Medo-Persian Empire took its place as King Darius assumed the throne. Hey, if Darius wanted Daniel in his service, Daniel was prepared for that. If Daniel in another moment was ready to kill Daniel, Daniel was ready for that because his life belonged to God, not to himself. And he was going to let God drive the agenda for his life. And at every step, he would be faithful and trust that God would vindicate him at the right time. My friends, we must... Have a big God. We must have assurance that we are rightly related to this God. We must be active in the spiritual disciplines to stay close to this God. And then we must let God be God in our lives. And my friends, I can promise you this everyone who will take such a stand and who will be faithful will be vindicated in the end. You will be. Look at verses 19 to 22. It says, Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Verse 21, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Isn't that remarkable? He is respectful to this pagan king, even after being cast into the den. But he says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they've not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So God shut the mouths of the lions that night. And Daniel survived. Daniel says that God sent his angel to protect him. Kind of the same language that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had used in that fiery furnace, right? The angel of God had come and protected them. And as we learn there, so we remind ourselves here that this was surely the angel of God. The Son of God, our pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of his Old Testament titles. And what that means is that on this night, the Son of God, who would one day come and die for Daniel's sins, was now sitting with the would-be martyr Daniel and giving him comfort during this long night. And the angel of God came to Daniel that night to show the whole world, Darius, the other bureaucrats, everyone who has read the story since, that God was always on Daniel's side, that God had never left Daniel, never forsaken Daniel, not through all of the ups and downs of his life, through all of the dangers and toils that he had to endure. God was always there. He was even with him on the darkest night of his life, the night he was cast into a den of lions. Christian, even in the most difficult moments of your life, God is with you. His Son is with you. Now, He may not come to you. In fact, I'm certain He will not come to you in as dramatic a fashion as He did for Daniel. This is a unique time in history. God is visibly manifesting Himself in the lion's den to Daniel. But though He is an invisible God to us, He is still with us. He indwells you. He surrounds you. And he will never leave you. Now, in Daniel's case, God came in power to provide a dramatic rescue because in this instance, God's supremacy would be most brilliantly displayed by rescuing Daniel from death instead of walking with Daniel through death. This isn't the way God normally operates. Usually, he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death and then meets us on the other side with open arms. He gives us the grace we need to offer our lives. In this case, as he sometimes does, he rescued Daniel to prove his supremacy. And what was the conclusion of the story? We see that in verses 24 to 28. First of all, Daniel's enemies were defeated. Verse 24 says, "...the king commanded those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions." Here's where it's really gruesome. They and their children and their wives. Darius was a brutal dictator. And before they had even reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones to pieces. You see, King Darius kept these lions half-starved so that when a victim was thrown in, they would immediately be torn to bits. Daniel's enemies were defeated and then God's God was exalted. Look at verses 25 through 27. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree, a new decree, that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. Enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. My friends, these final verses give us the concluding lesson of the whole chapter. Why do we have the story of Daniel and the lion's then in our Bibles? Well, this is the reason why. It's so that the world might know that the God of heaven, he alone is God. That there is no other. And that this God is the living God. That's in contrast to idols who are dead and to mere men who will one day die. He's the God who endures forever and whose kingdom endures forever. Why? Because he will never grow tired or old. He will never abdicate his throne. He will never be overpowered by another. He is supreme. And he's always there for his people to vindicate them. He is a worker of signs and wonders, so all may know of his existence and power. He is the God of Daniel, the God of everyone who flees to him in faith and repentance. He is a God who promises great victory to all who pledge themselves to him. My friends, one day our Lord, who came once and lived and died and rose and ascended back to his Father in heaven, one day God is going to send him back And he's going to come in power and glory. And when he does, the dead in Christ are going to rise from their graves. The living in Christ will be transformed without tasting death. Together they will meet the Lord in the air and that will be their great vindication. Whether it is now in this life or whether it is then, God will always commit himself to his people. He will vindicate them against all of their persecutors. We see verse 28, God prospered Daniel even in this life. It says, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Friends, this is how God works. He is a God who is sovereign over all. He is a God who delivers. My friends, see that you can trust this God. See that you must be faithful to him because he is worthy of your faithfulness. Follow Daniel as your example here. Here we have an example of faithfulness in prayer, in trials, in testimony. And ultimately, follow the example of Christ, the greatest exemplar we have. The one who was without sin, yet endured the death of the cross for our sakes. Friends, by grace, we can be faithful in this generation. And we can leave a testimony for the surpassing worth of God in Christ, we can leave that testimony with this generation if we will only be faithful like this. Now let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for the morning that you have given to us. Thank you for the, the account of Daniel and the lion's den. Lord, might we be a people who are as committed to you as he was. Might we be a people... Who will worship you, who will stand for you, who will submit to your will before and sometimes even against all others. And Lord, as we do so, might you give us the courage to stand and might you draw many people to yourself as they see the kind of courage that you give to your people in their moments of crisis. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen.